Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Done so in our lives. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 10 is our call to confession this morning. Hear God's word. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Thus far, the reading of God's word. In G.K. Chesterton's day, a newspaper asked for letters to the editor to answer the simple question. What is wrong with the world today? There are many answers that we might have to that today and in any day, but Chesterton wisely wrote back and just said, Dear Sir, I am. It's easy in these days when we can point out many wrongs being done in our society today on so many levels. It's easy to overlook that we are responsible before God for our own thoughts and words and actions which have been permeated with sin in this past week. So let's confess our own sins before Almighty God. Please kneel as you're able, and I'll pray this morning. Turning back to 1 Samuel for our continued sermon series there. If you have your Bibles along, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Samuel 4. And we'll jump right in here at chapter 3. A few weeks ago, we had God calling Samuel when he was a boy, and Eli uh, needing three times to understand God was calling. And then the prophecy against Eli's house at the end of that chapter. And the word of God was with Samuel. So now chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in, in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? 
These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the, the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory of, has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word gives to us all truth. It is often a, a somber and sobering truth. But we pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us what we need to hear. Uh, We often uh, seek encouragement and positive news, especially in darker times such as these. We pray, Lord, for the light of your word and your gospel and your grace to shine forth as we consider this word now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you after a week of vacation. Yes, it's really me, even without the beard. I've gone about four years without shaving it off, so it's been a while. Uh, I could try to tell you that I just did it so I could wear a mask better, but that's not really true. So. The, uh, the masks moves us a little closer to our subject today with our uh, governor's latest order, uh, fining individuals, stripping businesses of their licenses for not obeying her mask orders. I'm starting to feel like we're living in some kind of police state. But if I'm honest, and I compare it, compare the riots, the protests, everything really, in the last few days, uh, months in this nation, uh, 
If I compare all of this to the situation that Israel finds herself here in 1 Samuel 4, we've got it pretty good by comparison when we read this text carefully. There's some parallels uh, and lessons for us to learn, uh, but uh, let's also be grateful uh, for what God has given us thus far. The theme here today in 1 Samuel 4 is God bringing about the downfall of Eli's house, and God goes into exile himself for Israel's sin. That's at least figured for us, if not literally true. That's part of the theological point of this chapter. So let's consider that this morning. So we've got kind of two uh, halves of our text today, right? Uh, First 11 verses look at Israel's defeat. And then from verse 12 on, you have the news brought that the ark has been captured, uh, exiled, uh, really. So that's the two halves of the the, uh, uh, chapter. So let's look at this in a few smaller chunks now. The first three verses, you've got the first loss, defeat in battle, and Israel asking why. Why do they lose? Uh, And it's a perfectly natural uh, question. God's people, if we think about it, uh, big picture, uh, God is watching over his people. He's for his people. God's people should not lose. (laughs) That's a general rule. Uh, How does that bring God glory for his people to lose? Moses pleads that way with uh, God in the uh, wilderness of Sinai. If you destroy all of Israel and start over with me, what are the Egyptians going to think of you? I mean, that, that's a total loss and defeat. I mean, what, how can that bring you glory, God? It's not normal or right for God's people to suffer defeat at God's enemies. It does happen, and God allows it to happen. God ordains it to happen. But it's not the long-term picture of how things are going to go. Think of Job who suffered, uh, not for any sin that he did. All right, the gut reaction of Job and of Israel here in the first three verses is a good one. God, we are your people. What gives? Why? Uh, in verse 3, you have a hint at this same question. Uh, Israel gathers, no, it's verse 2 looks like. No, it's verse 1, sorry. They encamped at Ebenezer. Uh, The mention of Ebenezer is key. Uh, Three chapters later, uh, they're going to fight again and have a victory. And it's going to be at Ebenezer. And and Samuel's going to mention the name Ebenezer again. That's kind of the bookends of this section of Scripture. uh, Chapters 4 to 7 are kind of a unit. So Ebenezer is mentioned at the beginning and the end of them. And Ebenezer means, this far, God has helped us. God has helped us. And it's really ironic because the very first place is mentioned, God, God's our help. And what happens? They lose. <laughs> it's quite ironic. So what gives, God? We met at the place that means you're going to help us, and then we lost. So the question why is perfectly natural. If we are in covenant with God and things go wrong, ask him why he did this to you, whether it's losing a battle, financial hardship, people problems, parenting stress, whatever it might be. God, why are you doing this to me? Uh, Not in a way that's uh, railing against him, right? Berating him, but but honestly asking, Lord, why? What's what's going on? Why are you doing this to me? We had this in our Calvin uh, reading last week, uh, studying God's providence, right? Uh, when When providence goes against us, Calvin says, hey, we can be patient in adversity like that. Don't get mad at the person who's troubling you. Focus on your God who's sending you the trouble. 
uh, which is something we can think about in the whole uh, mask debacle today as well. Why is God doing this to us? That's the first section there, the first three verses. They have, a, they have an initial loss. Why? What's going on? Now, and that initially that looks like a response of faith. It isn't always, right? Some people ask God why, and they're doing so out of um, anger at God, berating Him, turning away from Him. And it turns out that's what Israel's doing. When we read on in verses 3 to 5, that's what we see. And it's almost a single sentence. I stop in the middle of a sentence. You've got a question there, the first quote in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And in the Hebrew, there's no punctuation or anything. And it just goes right on. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us. We realize quickly that Israel's not reacting faithfully, even though it may have looked like it at first. They go from why to let's take the Ark with no break in the grammar. It's almost a run-on sentence. The key point here is that Israel does not really pause to consider or to consult with God. And they ask why in kind of a flippant or angry way and then quickly move on to do what they want to do. Saul has this problem later in the book too, right? Several times. that Saul will consult with God and God won't answer and so Saul will go on and do his own thing. Or Saul winds up consulting the witch at Endor, right? So, same kind of problem. It starts here with Israel. Uh, they know Samuel uh, has the word of the Lord. That's at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. All Israel knows it. But Samuel's nowhere in the picture here. They don't consult with God. Instead, they, they literally take matters into their own hands. The Hebrew is, let's take the ark. Now, if they wanted, to, yeah, and again, I just mentioned this. If they wanted to, they could consult God. They know Samuel's uh, around, but he's not in the text. So Israel knew God was with him. They don't consult him. Israel is confused or rebellious. They've either forgotten or they refuse to ask God. Maybe they think that they're going to get the answer they don't like. Why did God do this, they say. And their very next breath is, let's fix it without asking him. <laughs> which shows their question of why, isn't really one of faith. Uh, the ark will save us from our enemies, they decide. Not God, but the ark. Right? So they bring in the ark. And verse 4, uh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. There the, the writer of Samuel is making a couple of points to, to point out how Israel's doing this wrong. Right? Remember, Lord of hosts means Yahweh of armies. Right? It's the motion of armies that has confounded them. And so we're reminded that it's uh, Yahweh who is the God of armies. Uh, so in their confusion, Israel's misapplying this truth. God does move armies, but God does the moving. You can't just move an ark around and figure God will move the armies around according to where you move the ark. It's, they're almost using the ark as a talisman, a lucky charm of sorts. No, God is the commander-in-chief. We cannot force his hand. Uh, I always like uh, thinking of Judas in this regard. I have uh, kind of a minority view probably on Judas and what he was thinking when he betrayed Jesus. I think Judas had the same thought that Israel had here uh, when he betrayed Jesus. Judas wanted to force Jesus' hand. 
he, he wanted to put him in a position where he had to either be arrested or actually fight the Romans and win. And that's what Judas does. He thought he could make God give us victory by throwing the ark itself, the Son of God himself, at God's enemies. That'll make God act. I have to be very careful with that kind of misguided zeal. God often does not want to defeat his enemies right now, militarily. He wants to let them win in the short term. Uh, he wants them to find that that win rings hollow. And then they come back to him in repentance and redemption later. Sometimes that's what God is doing. All we see in the heat of the battle is the need to win. Or the world as we know it is over. No, God has a bigger picture and we need to trust him with that. Israel gives a great shout. I think this is verse 5. Yes. And the whole earth resounded or quaked. And there you've got some hints back to the Joshua text that we read. When they circled Jericho. Uh, they've got the ark before God's enemies. The people give a great shout. The earth quakes. And what happens next? The walls fall down flat. Everything happens the same way except for the walls falling. Here, same thing. Great shout. Ark is there. Earthquakes. And then they lose. <laughs> it's a huge contrast to make the point. Uh, so uh, there you have uh, in that section, uh, first we had uh, the question why, and then the, the faithless response to bring the ark. So the ark is uh, uh, taken. The defeat comes. So first, before that happens, we have the, the Philistines' response. And it's a big, long one. Six through nine, this, this response here, it's, it's wonderfully fascinating. They fear Yahweh in a way, right? They're really upset that this ark has come in. They know about this God who's defeated the Egyptians with the plagues. They fear Yahweh. And notice here that both sides assume their gods go before them and fight for them. It's really interesting. We uh, liberal scholars often uh, interpret this as just a primitive text of primitive people uh, who thought that uh, their gods were the ones who would fight for them. And everybody thought the same, and uh, how silly that was is kind of the conclusion. Well, during the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln's advisor uh, sought to console him before a battle. He said, at least we know God is on our side. And Lincoln's response is fascinating. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Interesting little twist. So the Philistines respond here. They, they say, we need to be concerned about this. Woe to us. This is a great God that has come among us. Let's fight. <laughs> and talk about moral confusion there. Right? If you really fear this God, if he's as great as you're saying he is, why are you fighting against him? Uh, so, interesting uh, concept there. There's a whole lot that we could think about here about responding out of fear. Uh, responding out of fear can be very effective, as it is in this event for the Philistines. Right? Their fear drives them to fight harder, and they win. Responding out of fear often can be a good and effective thing. What you fear is key, right? What they really fear here is not the God of Israel. They fear becoming slaves of the Hebrews. That becomes clear the longer they talk. That's what their fear really is. They're not loyal to the God of Israel. 
They fear him to a sense. Their loyalty is opposite to him. That's what's wrong about them, not necessarily their fear. Right? Many people in our world today do the same thing. They have some interaction with the Christian God. They see the truth about him. Then they reject him. Because that would mean that they would have to serve him. Repent. Change. Stop being selfish. That's the picture of the Philistines here. They don't want to do that. So they're going to fight. And sometimes they're going to win and get away with it for a while. The Philistines don't want to serve Israel or their God. Well, that's uh, enough on the Philistines' response there. Let's go on. The defeat takes place in verses 10 and 11. The ark of God is captured. Uh, Here you have the picture that we see in Scripture often. God sends the Philistines, God sends some of Israel's enemies to destroy his own house. Right? To take the ark into captivity. Same thing with the Assyrians later. They carry off Israel into exile. And this is a major loss. 30,000 Israelites. God is sometimes quite violent in defending his justice, his honor, his glory. Just as he was with Israel at Ai in Joshua 7. Why did they lose? God told them plainly it was for sin within the camp that they had not dealt with. Achan had taken for himself some booty, just as Israel with Hophni and Phinehas had taken for itself the ark. If you try to take God's presence for your own purposes, it's going to be taken from you. But if you instead pray, God's kingdom come, God may your will be done, then we're on more stable ground. So the defeat takes place and we get to part two of the text today. Verses 12 to 18, the news comes to Eli. A little bit of drama in here, right? That He tells the news to the whole city. There's this great shout, all kinds of clamor. But Eli hasn't heard the news yet, and he can't see. More, you know, that, that's literary illusion right there. Eli is supposedly in charge, but he can't hear, he can't see. Uh, he's got to be told almost last in the whole city what happens. Uh, so Eli trembles for the ark. Not for his sons necessarily. Verse 13. That's, that point is made twice there in verse 13 and also in verse 18. As soon as he mentioned the ark, Eli fell over backwards. So Eli is trembling for the ark. Probably Hophni and Phinehas who are with the ark when it's captured, they were probably fine when the elders of Israel come from the battlefield and say, hey, give us the ark. We're taking it to battle. Hophni and Phinehas seem to be okay with that. And Eli, I don't think, was. But once again, Eli is not restraining his sons. It's, it's past that time. They're doing what they want. And it's not good stuff. So Israel had expected to defeat the Philistines, as Joshua did. But their confident faith under Joshua turned into a hypocritical presumption. They assumed that God was still with them because of their blood, their nation, their heritage, whatever it might be, instead of because of their faith. Uh, I humbly submit that in our time in America, it's maybe time to admit and to start acting like God is no longer for us as a nation because of our heritage, but against us because of our rebellion over the decades. Maybe you can't make a black and white statement like that. That may be dangerous, but it's important for us to consider Uh, Not that we shouldn't continue to pray for God to bless the USA, 
But that blessing needs to be more repentance and a radical turn to him before any blessing can be expected. I don't think I need to rehearse the ways we have turned away from God over the decades. We've, as one general said, we've met the enemy, and it is us. So the ark's capture can speak powerfully to us today when we assume God's with us while we advocate such awful things. Eli falls back over, uh, off of his seat. The word is seat, it, the, the same word you can use for throne. Uh, and uh, Eli is judged, his sons killed, all in one day. It's a sad, awful judgment. But it's, it's God's prophecy from the previous chapter coming true. It's Hannah's song in chapter 2 coming true, that God will take down those who are allowing and doing wickedness. And he will put in their place someone more faithful. So again, Eli, he sees, he hears, but he doesn't see or hear. He doesn't, uh, right when God's judgment is falling, he doesn't even know it or realize it. That's often the case too. I think that's the case for us in our nation. I think there are ways in which God is judging us right now uh, by what's happening around us. And we're still in the mindset of trying to stave off God's judgment. But if we would only do this and that, then God wouldn't do awful things like this. Well, we're already into the uh, passage of judgment, perhaps. Well, Eli falls off his throne beside the city gate. Uh, verse 19 through 22, Eli's grandson, Ichabod, is born. Uh, and she names him Ichabod, which means no glory, or the glory is gone. Uh, and here's a, an echo to Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel has this vision uh, of, of the temple and the ark of God in the temple. And the glory cloud uh, lifts up off of the temple and leaves and goes uh, towards Assyria. Uh, God's glory leaves the temple and goes to be with his people in exile. The same kind of thing is going on here as the ark is taken away from Shiloh, away from Israel. The judgment here comes all at once, even though the unfaithfulness had built up for years. So that's a, a quick walk through the, the chapter. Just a couple of uh, comments. Uh, first, uh, let's uh, consider how this takes us to the Lord Jesus. Uh, exile was the worst punishment for breaking covenant. Uh, God mentions this back in Deuteronomy. Uh, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. And there's all kinds of description of those, uh, how the blessings will come, how the cursings will come. And the climax of the cursing section is, I'll carry you off by your enemies to a land you don't know, to a people you don't know. Exile is one of the worst punishments for breaking covenant. God says the land's going to spit you out if you're unfaithful. But when Israel's unfaithful here, she doesn't go into exile. God does. In a surprising twist, the ark leaves and again, back in verse 4, it says, God is enthroned on the cherubim. This is the symbol of the presence of God. So you've got a picture here of God himself leaving Israel, going into exile. Uh, and he's carted off, literally, to the temple of his enemies and lets himself be set up as a spectacle among the nations. He's bearing the curse of Israel's sin for Israel. I hope that's starting to sound familiar, because for his people's sin, we are not punished, God is. 
God humbles himself in the person of Jesus Christ, lets himself be put on trial by his enemies, flogged, and then catch this, he's led outside of the city. And his presence had to leave Israel because he bore all of their sin. It's like that scapegoat back in Leviticus, right? Put all the, hand, the, the, the sins, you know, lay the hand on the goat, and then send it out of the city, out of the camp. Jesus was taken outside of the camp. He was the glory that departed from Israel. And all the cursed and condemned and unclean things were outside the camp. It's where the lepers had to live. It's where you dumped the city's garbage and sewage, right? I remember back in our, uh, the day when our kids were still in diapers, we had a spot in our home like this. Maybe you have this, right? It's, it's a, for us, it was in the garage against the side door, right? Just outside that door is the trash can. But when you've got to change a really bad diaper, and it's got to be fast because you've got two other little ones you've got to take care of, you quick throw it against the side door in the garage, you'll take care of it later. But then you've got five or six of those piled up, and that, that's outside the camp <laughs> right there. That's where you bear the curse. That's where Yahweh of armies goes to bear the stink and the curse of all of our garbage and dung and sin. And Jesus goes outside the city. He's crucified. My God, why have you forsaken me? God took the curse for us. Imagine the humiliation of being carted off by an army of Philistines. Israel defeated and killed behind you to go to the temple of Dagon. God allows these things to happen to himself, sometimes to his people, all for his bigger plan. So, uh, application today, five things quickly. Believe Jesus Christ has taken this curse for us, for you. That's number one. Believe this has happened. Number two, put away your sins. Stop it. Don't presume on God's mercy. We need to be faithful to the God who is uh, given so much to remove our sins from his sight. We need to stop those sins. Number three is similar. In Hebrews 13, it says, Let us therefore go forth to Christ outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This is one I think we need to learn a, a bit more as believers today. We get the first couple, most of us. We know we have to believe. We know we have to strive against sin. Uh, here's one that Christians in our culture, in our time, probably need to learn a bit more carefully. We have to be willing to bear that reproach, that curse with Christ. We can't expect the world to treat us any better than it treated Jesus. And that may mean being carried off and persecuted militarily or politically for some. It may mean living under an ungodly secular government that doesn't acknowledge God or his truth at all. We're an offense a reproach, the aroma of death to those rebelling against God. And we need to let that happen. If God wants that to happen, we need to, need, to, need to let it happen. I'm not saying don't fight for righteousness in the public square. Don't get me wrong. We ought to do that as we can. We ought to be ready with an answer uh, for our hope that is within us, certainly. Uh, lead them to the truth if they will come. But also be ready to receive ridicule and mockery for following a crucified Messiah, a God who is absolute truth, with commands for how we are to live. 
So be willing to bear the reproach. That's number three. Uh, number four, Israel tries guaranteeing God's presence with a technique, a shortcut. Move the ark. Get the ark here. Then we'll be fine. And God turns out to be there, but against them <laughs> instead of for them. Yeah, so, and that's because of their lack of faith. So that's a lesson for us to learn, too. You can have the right technique, the right method, the right program. You can be educating your children in a Christian manner, doing all the right steps of discipline as are needed, but still lack faith in God. And that's what Israel was doing. Let's bring back the glory days when things were going better for us. Let's put up some Norman Rockwell posters and bring out the ark and do it like we did it 200 years ago, and we'll be all set. No, what makes the difference is God blessing each generation with faith and hope and love for him. When we turn away from God in our hearts, we may still have the shell, the, the outer trappings of faith. We may still know what we're supposed to do, but we've lost our first love. Careful that we haven't fallen into that. And last uh, today, the fall of Israel here is a blessing in disguise. It's a prelude to victory. Uh, as was Golgotha, as was the cross, when the new Israel found in Christ fell at the cross, there was the resurrection coming in three days. Times of discipline and judgment like this are never pleasant, but it reaps a great harvest in due time. It's a somber warning for us, but it's also a signal that God conducts the affairs of nations and he brings about what he wants. And that same God is for us. So we may have anxiety over elections, over the direction our country's going. Such anxieties fade away, or at least back into perspective, when we remember that the sovereign God is for us, his people. We know he is because he's given his son to bear our curse. So go forth confident, knowing that even in our darkest God-forsaken hour, there is hope in the one who bore our sins outside the camp. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing about uh, turns of events that surprise us, astonish us, even confound us. Uh, for your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. You do all things well. Even when in your providence uh, great evils take place, uh, you work them for the good of your people who love you. Uh, Lord, let us trust you in all things. Uh, give us faith to act, uh, to uh, be loyal to you, uh, to study with our minds and your word what we are to do. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. We pray in the name of Jesus, the ever-living word, and we sing as he taught us to pray. table, we turn first to Hebrews chapter 11, part of the by faith chapter, 4 through 6 verses. Uh, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, 
through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The communion table here is set, and we need to be careful to approach in faith here. Do not come as Israel brought the ark to battle, self-assured of victory because they did a thing, like go to church, hold the right religious object. No, we need to fight trusting God like Joshua did. We need to work believing God, like Paul, the tent maker, did. We eat and drink here, looking to Jesus to save us. Abel and Abraham and many before us have offered sacrifice to God by faith, and God blessed them for it. So look for God's blessing today in the bread and the wine. Jesus bore the curse for you, and he brings a new way of life into your heart, your family, this church, all the world. With that, let us receive Christ and rest on him alone for our salvation today. The body of Christ, broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.